Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology. This week is only going to be a short episode and it's a little bit of a self-indulgent one from me because this week we've been talking all about fulfilment in your practice and how to make sure that your practice brings you inspiration and professional fulfillment alongside the work-life balance that many of us are looking for when we go into private practice. And for me, a big part of making sure that I always have inspiration for my work, that I feel motivated and like I'm still engaged in clinical psychology as a profession is about what I'm consuming. And that is part of the reason I think that I don't really hop on board too much with the shift towards very short form content because I don't get much fulfillment out of making it, if I'm honest, because there's always more I want to say. Like every time I make a reel, I'm always left thinking, but I wanted to put that in and that in and that in and I couldn't say any of that. And so although I might enjoy it in other ways, it doesn't really fulfill me very much. Whereas when I write something on my Substack or I record a podcast like this, or I do a kind of longer piece for the media, those things feel really fulfilling to me, like like I'm putting something really valuable out into the world. And likewise, if I spend two hours consuming short form content, I often just feel sort of frustrated and antsy and not really like I've done anything worthwhile with my time. Whereas when I find a new substack that I'm really interested in or if I you know, read a chapter of a book that I've been wanting to read for ages, I can feel that filling up my inspiration cup. <laughs> and that sounds so cheesy, but I think a lot of people will probably know what that feels like. It might not be reading that does it for you. It might be listening to a really good podcast or listening to a great audio book, or it might be watching a TEDx talk. But you know those things where you really feel like you're getting into the meat of an issue and it's it, it just lights up your brain in a different way, I think. And when I make the time to do that, I notice that it carries over into my work. I have more ideas, like in the therapy room, as well as kind of, you know, creative projects. It's also when I'm in therapy with somebody, if I've been reading something interesting, I'll notice that I think of more interesting metaphors. I might come up with an adaptation to an exercise, which, you know, I pat myself on the back for a little bit because I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that was a good way of doing that. It's just like the whole creative part of my brain is more available to me. And I'm sure when you make the time, you will notice that change as well and for me it is a big change because when I was in the first year of my practice and probably the second year too I didn't have any time to do things like read not really I might sometimes out of guilt scan read a journal article but it was rare it was snatched and I never really felt like I was indulging the creative part of my brain at all I wasn't reading any novels for example 
And that's because, frankly, I was overworking. And a, a large part of that is because I was undercharging and because therapy was the only income in my business. And I've talked about that loads on this podcast before. We've got tons of episodes on you know, business planning, setting your fees and stuff like that. So if, if you're in that position right now and you're thinking, I don't have any time, then go back to some of those episodes because actually, you know, upping your fees very slightly can free up a slot, which you can then use to fill up your inspiration cup, as I like to think of it. So yeah, so I really noticed the difference and I thought what might be useful is to share some recommendations with you guys for books that I've started and I'm planning to read over the next three to six months. I won't get through all of them. It's not my intention to finish all of these books within the next six months, that would be wholly unrealistic. But particularly with some of the professional books, The way that I use them is that I'll have them on my desk and when it's pertinent or I've got, you know, an hour slot free, then I'll take that time to to read a chapter. So please don't listen to this list and think, oh my God, she must be reading a book a day. Of course not. I don't have very much time at all. I do have plenty of time for novels because I have a baby that likes to go to sleep with me lying beside her. So from about seven till nine every night, I'm reading novels. But yeah, I don't have loads of time for other types of reading. It's just that I make sure I have a regular slot every week, maybe an hour, maybe two, where I do do some reading and I'll just work my way through these books slowly, depending on what I need and what feels important on that day. So we'll start with the kind of self-development one that I have on the go at the moment. And I don't think many of you actually will have heard of this one, but if I have any listeners from other industries who are maybe small business owners in the creative fields, this is a really famous book, but I hadn't heard of it until really recently when Janet Murray recommended it on her social media. And I I always trust Janet's recommendations for books because she really knows what she's talking about. So I looked it up and it's called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And it's a self-development book to help you reconnect with creativity. And as you'll have gathered from the focus of this series, this is a big priority for me at the moment. And it has these kind of core concepts that you go back to every day. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not managing to do it every day because my life doesn't work that way. But you might be able to make it work. And if you can, I can see that it would be really powerful. And what I am doing is taking what I can from it and and using that as often as I can. And I am noticing some positive impact. So for example, one of the things it asks you to do is every day to write three pages of handwritten prose in the morning. So it doesn't need to be you know, anything enlightened. You can just literally write over and over again. I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. But it's just the action of engaging yourself in that task every morning. And I love journaling. And so I was like, yes, this will be really good for me. But of course, you know, I get up with young children first thing in the morning. I'm solo parenting. So no, of course, I don't manage it every morning. But when I do do it, I notice my mind decluttering and I do have a more creative day. So I do it as much as I can. The other thing that it recommends you do week in, week out is this weekly artist date where you take yourself off to do something that is kind of outside of your daily grind to fill up that inspiration cup in a sort of novel way. And again, I haven't quite managed to do that yet because of the solo parenting and, you know, the struggle is real. 
but I, I, I believe that that will be really impactful because one thing I did do over the Christmas holidays is I went ice skating, which was a real luxury. It was kind of difficult to orchestrate it, but we have in Tunbridge Wells, we have this outdoor ice rink. And I felt again, because it was outside of my comfort zone, really outside of my usual activities, I just really wanted to to give it a go. And I felt more inspired and more creative after doing that. So I think there's something to it. I'm going to stick with it, even though maybe it's a little bit unrealistic for me to stick to the course doggedly. But I'm going to apply my psychological flexibility and take from it what I can. So that's one that I recommend if you're looking for more creativity in your life. On the self-development theme, one that I am dipping in and out of is Dare to Lead by Brené Brown. Now, I have read this before, and you've probably heard me talk about Brené Brown a lot in the first series of this podcast, because I discovered her stuff in the first lockdown on audiobook and became a bit obsessed and listened to it a lot. So I love her stuff. I've already kind of absorbed it all. But this is a really great one to have on my desk to access when I need to engage with the leader within me. As I mentioned earlier in this series, I don't really enjoy the leadership aspect. <laughs> Sometimes I feel a bit icky and I often feel very self-conscious when I have to engage my inner leader. So having that book as a support where I can just dip in and read a chapter or half a chapter when I'm feeling a little bit impostery and a bit like I want to run away from everything has been really helpful and really supportive so I really recommend that one. So coming on to professional books then there are three on my desk at the moment sort of winking at me making me feel (laughs) guilty already because I know realistically I'm not going to read three professional books cover to cover in the next six months but what I am committing to do is to you dip in, especially when I've got a client or a project that it's particularly relevant for. So the first one of those is a book called Generation A by Amy Hurley Harrison, I think, or Hurley Hansen, maybe. Amy Hurley Hansen, I believe. And it's a collection of autism research on subjects relating to autism in the workplace. So it is It's kind of a massive book and it's one of those books which is a bit of a research compendium but I came across it for an assignment that I was working on for my MBA and it really got me thinking about the work that I do with organisations and supporting parents in the workplace. I'm thinking about the kind of supports that parents of autistic children will need in the workplace and how very often those same parents go on a journey where they then start to recognise their own autistic traits and how they may then recognise that they need further support in the workplace as well. So this, you know, is a it's quite a new area of interest for me, but I thought I would start by diving into the research base as it is. And this is a really nice up-to-date book that summarises a lot of that. So I'm dipping in to that book when I've got time to do so and just kind of letting the ideas from it percolate through my mind and inform some of the perinatal work I do in the therapy room as well because these issues are neurodiversity, neurodivergence, they're coming up more and more in my therapeutic work just as they are in my personal life. Uh, So a very interesting one for me at the moment. The next one, which I suspect I will read cover to cover, is Very Brief Cognitive Behavioural Coaching by Wendy Dryden. 
Now, I have read quite a bit of Windy's work before. My coaching supervisor put me onto their stuff quite a while ago, but this is a book which I think I'd really benefit from actually reading cover to cover because I already offer single session coaching for psychologists and therapists who want to come and maybe fix one very simple and contained problem in their business or their marketing plan. But I've not really considered what I might be able to do from that perspective for parents in the workplace. And in conversations I've been having with organisations, they a few people have mentioned to me that they feel that it would be really helpful for parents returning to the workplace to have some coaching around how to look after their mental health in that setting. And I'm interested in that idea. So I'm going to immerse myself in a few more books and articles around how coaching could work in that way Um, and I'm going to look into some CPD in that area as well and think about whether that's something I want to offer or not and again I find I'll get stuck in my head and just think about it for hours and hours and hours until I take some action like picking up a new book and um, and starting to really investigate it that way so I'm really looking forward to that book and I suspect that one will be a cover to cover from me. Another one that I'm really interested in, which I'm probably not going to get to until sort of the end of this six month period, but I am really interested in it, is EMDR Group Therapy, which is edited by Robinson and Captain. And you can only get that in electronic formats in the UK, which is a bit of a downside for me because I find it difficult to read professional books electronically. Goodness knows why. I'm fine with novels, but I do find it easier to read a professional book in hard copy but it was recommended to me by my EMDR supervisor because there's something that I'm working on which is not group therapy but it is an intervention to support people going through severe pregnancy sickness using EMDR and one of the concerns that I have is in certain circumstances wanting to stop trauma processing from happening which sounds a bit odd so it's there's something that you can do called EMD which for those of you who don't do EMDR therapy you might not have heard of this but it's where you can desensitize to present day triggers without reprocessing past trauma so in theory this could be a way of giving people some relief who for whatever reason it's not indicated for them to go back and do reprocessing possibly because they don't have access to a trained professional to help them do that so there's been loads of controversy around apps doing emdr with people mainly because we're all a bit skeptical of how you could actually stop somebody from going on to reprocessing if you're doing bilateral stimulation. I'm just, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And and neither was my supervisor. So she's put me onto this book because in certain group therapy settings, you also have that need that you don't necessarily want people kind of going all over the place. And in this book, they talk about loads of different applications of EMDR in group settings so I'm hoping I might be able to pick up some ideas from there so I will let those of you who are interested know how I get on with that and yeah I'm developing those ideas with a couple of other psychologists 
very slowly over time. So I imagine I'll be kind of dipping in and out of that, looking at the bits that look promising and interesting rather than reading it cover to cover because with electronic stuff, I really struggle with that. But very interesting. And you can see, and probably hear, how inspiring that is to me. Like reading how people are applying tools that I already use in my therapeutic practice in different ways, in completely different settings, that always kind of lights up my brain. In fact, you know, one of my favourite books of last year was All That We Are by Gabriella Braun. And I had her on the podcast and we talked about it. And that was one of the reasons that book inspired me so much. Because, you know, she works in a really different way to me. She's worked in all these different contexts. And just thinking about how the kind of tools of our trade can be applied in different ways was just fascinating. Um, And thinking about her personal process too. So that's another book recommend, a bonus one <laughs> from last year. But but yeah, I think it works in a similar way for me. I just really love thinking about how we can use what we already do, but in, in different ways. So coming on then to the books that I'm reading for fun, I have to read this year What About Men by Catelyn Moran. I have to read it. I can't believe I didn't read it already. I get so excited every time she releases a new book. I just haven't made time for it, which is ridiculous because I know I'm going to love it. So that is a kind of social commentary book, which is on my list, but it will also be wildly funny. I am confident. So if you haven't read any Catelyn Moran, you must read all of Catelyn Moran's stuff. And I must read What About Men? So that's on my list. Novels wise, I've already read this year The Paris Apartment by Lucy Foley, which I'm unapologetic about the fact it is a classic whodunit. And I loved it. Page Turner loved it. Not every book has to be a literary giant. Some books are about entertainment and that is really well written, great entertainment. So The Paris Apartment, Lucy Foley, read it if you want a page turner, very engaging. I'm reading at the moment Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo and it is brilliant. This is more of a literary giant, I have to say. But it's really, it's so well written that despite the fact that it is not written in a linear way and it plays around with punctuation and use of language and all those things that people like me with English degrees get excited about, it is still really readable and I'd recommend it to anybody listening. So it 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 takes the perspective of a range of different black British women all different ages, stages, backgrounds, and you kind of see the world through their eyes for a few pages. And I I just can't really describe to you how interesting and engaging it is and how it manages to address social issues without feeling heavy or worthy or, I mean, it's just beautiful. Everything that you want a novel to be, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll, you know, feel all the feelings and you feel like you're learning something as well. So read that one. It's a massive recommendation for me. I don't know how it ends yet, but I have a suspicion that she's going to tie all the stories together beautifully. So yeah, I haven't quite got to the ending, but I have no doubt that it's going to be really good. So another fiction on my list is Call of the Penguins by Hazel Pryor. I don't know anything about it yet, other than my mother-in-law, who is an ex-librarian, who is very knowledgeable about books, has recommended it to me. 
I know that it will be good because she never gets it wrong. So there you go. You should read that because Leslie Gilderthorpe tells you to read that. (laughs) Uh, I'm also, another gift actually from my mother-in-law is Can You See Me by Libby Scott and Rebecca Westcott. And that is fiction, but it has kind of a a mental health neurodiversity um, to it because it's a book about an 11-year-old girl who is autistic and her life and her friendships and kind of the world from her perspective. It's got amazing reviews. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Haven't started yet. And one of the reasons I'm most excited about reading it is that Libby Scott is herself an 11-year-old autistic girl. And I think it's wonderful to have that kind of authentic input. And Rebecca Westcott has written a load of really good books uh, for young adults. So I've got no doubt that it's going to be really interesting, really readable, but I think just wonderful to get a young person's voice out there in that way. So looking forward to all of those. So I know that sounds like loads. um, And like I said, I shan't be reading everything cover to cover. And I do have lots of novel reading time because of a two-year-old who likes it to be that way. So I don't want you to go away and think, oh, I've got to, you know, make a list that covers all of those things. But what I would really recommend is that you have a think of books which span different genres and parts of your life. So I think it's a really great idea to have something self-development on the go. I think it's a really great idea to have at least one professional book on the go. And I think it's a really good idea to have something that is just fun for you, genuine fun for you, where your brain goes, oh, that was nice. So whether that is a detective novel, whether that is a biography of somebody that you find really inspiring, but just something that your brain is going to really enjoy as pure entertainment I think you know don't neglect that bit would be my advice so I really hope that that has given you some ideas for things that you might like to read or audiobooks you might like to listen to or TED talks you want to look up never forget that you're a human being and that your work is really human And I know that probably sounds a bit daft, but our work requires the creative part of our brain to be functioning. We we don't do good therapy when we've neglected ourselves and we're feeling like unfulfilled husks. You know, we, we don't do a job that you can do with half your brain. You need all of it. And so making time to ensure that you're firing on all your creative cylinders is not selfish and I think we should view it as an essential so if like I said earlier if you need any help creating that time and space in your calendar then do go back and listen to our pricing episodes our episodes around generating passive income because it's it's absolutely possible and I think essential to running a fulfilling practice that you do make time for this kind of stuff which nurtures you. Okay, so off my soapbox, enjoy your reading everybody, and I will see you next week for another episode of The Business of Psychology. Is this the year that you take your private practice seriously? Maybe you're just starting out, or perhaps you want to grow your practice with a team or passive income. 
Whatever stage you're at, I would love to support you. For new practices, I have our group coaching program, Start and Grow, where you'll find all the support, resources and knowledge you need to create an impactful and rewarding practice. For more established practices, come and take a look at my coaching for growth. I have a couple of spots left for individual coaching, so let me help you get 2024 off to the best start possible. Thank you so much for listening to the Business of Psychology podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to subscribe, rate and review the show. It helps more mental health professionals just like you to find us and it also means a lot to me personally when I read the reviews. Thank you in advance and we'll see you next week for another episode of Practical Strategy and Inspiration to move your independent practice forwards.